0: So we started this uh, last week, excuse me, we we started this series back uh, in the fall, actually. And um, Andrew and I have been preaching through this. And last week we looked at Acts chapter 11, different things about persecution and so forth. Uh, And this week we come to Acts chapter 12, which is a very exciting story. So let's read this together. About that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And this was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea... Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Heavenly Father, we are amazed that you would do such things, that you would providentially. See to it that Peter would escape from prison through an angel. Lord, help us to understand these things. What do they mean? What, what is going on here? Why do some escape the sword and some don't? Lord, this is your story of redemption. And we are, are part of that story. So this morning, help us to understand uh, how we fit in, and what you're doing, and all the things surrounding uh, our lives, that we can trust in you with all of them. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, one question I want to start off real quick is, what is this passage about? You know, as we said last week, the main purpose of the book of Acts is to tell the story of ...of what God was doing at this particular point in redemptive history. And this was the beginning of the new Christian church, remember? So it makes sense that we're going to learn uh, uh, lots of things about historical events during this time. And this morning I want to highlight two characteristics of redemptive history... ...that are brought out by this passage. In this chapter we see the persecution of the church continue... James, the apostle and brother of John, is killed by the sword by King Herod. Peter is put in prison and awaits the death penalty. And their only crime was that they were Christians. But Peter is miraculously freed by an angel and escapes. The soldiers who were guarding Peter and held responsible for his escape, they're executed. King Herod gives a speech and the people spontaneously start to worship him. But because he doesn't give glory to God, he's struck down by an angel and eaten by worms. If anyone has ever told you that the Bible is boring to read, they are reading the wrong Bible. This is awesome. It's crazy. What God is doing, right? And so there are two themes I want to highlight from this story. One is that there is a, a supernatural realm that enters into the physical world. It's one of the things we see here. There's a supernatural realm that enters into the physical world. And the second is that God is providentially in control of everything that happens. God is providentially in control of everything that happens. So let's take a look at the first one. God uses the supernatural to interact with the physical world. So this story in Acts 12 is about Peter escaping from prison, right? But as we can see, only God could have orchestrated all this to happen the way it actually happened. Especially since he employs angels to help him. So one obstacle you might need to overcome is whether or not you believe that this story actually happened. Angels? Really? Chains falling off without keys? Sounds more like folklore than history, doesn't it? Well, while I'm not able to convince anyone in regards to the supernatural acts of Scripture, I do have some things for you to consider. First one is simply this. If you believe in God, who is a spirit, then you already believe in the supernatural. Second is, if you believe that anyone goes to heaven, then you already believe in the supernatural. Thirdly, if you believe that your worship this morning is heard beyond human ears and is received by God himself, then you already believe in the supernatural. So you're on your way. And some people have difficulty believing in the supernatural because they can't see it right God is a spirit we can't see him except on the pages of scripture through his acts and through his son Jesus who was the uh, exact representation was God in the flesh but we have that problem we can't see it but just because you can't see something with your eyes does not mean that it's not real I can't see gravity but every time I take a step, I believe it to be true. I know it's real. And there are events in the Bible that reveal to us that there is more than a physical realm to life. There is a spiritual realm, and it is as real as gravity. Well, to help us understand this, just a couple quick things to understand the spiritual realm and how it interacts With redemptive history, right? So, from Genesis to Revelation, there's this historical story. There's a story of God redeeming us to himself, his people to himself. And there's some things that go along with that. So, first of all, God uses the course of history to tell us his story as it unfolds chronologically in the Bible. Okay? Now, we know that our Bibles, as it is published, right, and put together... The 66 books of the Bible, they're not all in chronological order. The books aren't. But the story is in chronological order. So maybe some of you, I think my wife is reading the Bible in a Year program, but she's using the chronological Bible, reading it. So it puts everything into, into that perspective. Secondly, we have to understand when you read the Bible and study the Bible that it's made up of different genres of literature. Okay, so there are uh, different types of literature: the historic, historical, prophetic, wisdom, biographical. Uh, there are parables, apocalyptic, poetry, letters, psalms, and so on. And so, when you interpret the Bible, you have to do it and interpret it according to its literary and grammatical constructions. Okay, that's how we understand it. For instance, we believe that the Book of Jonah is a historical narrative, right? We believe that Jonah was actually thrown overboard a ship and swallowed by a whale. And that he was coughed up three days later. We believe that to be true. That is a recorded supernatural event in history. And when Jesus raises the son of a widow coming out of the town of Nain, we believe that to be a supernatural event that took place in history. But when Jesus tells a parable... About one man who owes another man $6 billion, he's telling a story, an illustration, okay? But it's important for us to know. There are things in the Bible that are recorded as supernatural events. We just have to pay attention. Thirdly, most of the miracles that we read about in the Bible are not occurring on a daily basis. I think that might be something we kind of don't, don't grasp if we're not thinking about it. God provided miracles and supernatural events to occur, occur, mainly when he was doing something special in redemptive history, okay? So, think about the the big events in history and how God would bring them about. Noah and the flood, that was a supernatural event. Abraham's wife getting pregnant when she was barren, okay, that was a supernatural event. God, and that was God, uh, part of God's redemptive plan to bring about his covenant and uh, start the mission to the nations. Moses in the parting of the Red Sea was when the Israelites were coming out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Jesus being conceived of a virgin. was a supernatural event, but it was ushering in the, the reality that God had come in the flesh. And the miracles of the New Testament as they uh, portrayed this, this era of the new church. It, it seems the way God works with... Big miracles like that is with big events in uh, redemptive history. And many of these were hundreds of years apart, but they all accompanied a new age in what God was doing to save his people and advance his kingdom through Jesus. So, but one, one question I think a lot of people ask is, do miracles still happen today? It's a great question. Do miracles still happen today? And I say yes. I believe they do, do still happen today, especially if you count a dead, cold heart to God being regenerated to life and someone being, a new, uh, get, been, being given a new heart by the Holy Spirit. You ask me personally, do other miracles happen? Does God supernaturally enter into the physical world today? Yes, I think he does. It may not be... In the public way that we see in the scriptures. But God still works miracles and acts in supernatural ways. That's who he is. He's supernatural. And he enters in to this physical world. Well, the other theme I want to highlight from this passage is the providence of God in action. The providence of God in action. It is, this is an amazing story. And we tend to focus on Peter being released from prison by an angel. But we also see a few other things. James is killed. Four squads of soldiers, which is 16 men, are executed. King Herod is struck down by the hand of God. Earnest prayer is being made by Christians on behalf of Peter and the other fellow Christians who are being persecuted. And so this this story is part of a much bigger story. Than just angels releasing someone from prison. All these things take place because God ordains all of them to happen. And remember, we just noted, not all escaped. Peter, yes. James, no. The soldiers, no. Herod, he didn't escape either. Eighteen people died in this passage. You pick. I don't know if you were counting or not, but I went back and counted in this one little passage. So, how do we understand all of this, and what impact does it have on our own period of redemptive history? We believe that the providence of God is always at work. God just doesn't sit there on His throne and, and let things happen. He is constantly at work, and here it's you know, the providence of God is this massive doctrine. My friend John Piper recently released this book. Look how thick this thing is. It's ridiculous. It's like, how many pages does it have? Over 700 pages. Okay, I've got about uh, eight minutes here. Okay, so we're not going to get through it all. But if you're interested, I think this, I have not read the entire book. My friend Parker Eads, I think, has read it. it. But uh, I think it's going to be a good one. Okay. But. We are going to talk just a couple of things about the providence of God. Okay? Here at Spring Run, we believe the Bible teaches that God is sovereignly in control of everything that happens. And he not only rules over all creation, but he directs and he guides all of creation for his own glory. Our Westminster Confession of Faith says this. This is from chapter 5, paragraph 1. So, bear with me for a minute because the language is a little bit archaic, but I think you guys are educated enough to understand it. God, the creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Now, I have to admit, the doctrine of the providence of God is mind-blowing, And while God allows us to understand some of it, we will never understand all of it because we are the creature and he is the creator. Think about it this way. A child may understand that it is dangerous to run out into the street because his mother told him so. But the child will never understand the mindset of the mother who told him not to run out into the street. The mother who spent nine months carrying that child in the womb. Who spent hours in labor birthing that child. Who has spent hundreds of hours nurturing, loving, and parenting that child. The child knows its mother is protecting them. But it does not know the fullest depths of love, concern, and wisdom that the mother has for her child. And nor do we know The fullest depths of the Father's love for us. The Apostle Paul expresses this in his letter to the Ephesians... ...when he prays that they would have spiritual strength... ...to endure the times that they lived in... ...and to grow in their relationships with Christ. He says this. This is from uh, Ephesians 3.14 and following. Paul says, For this reason I kneel before the Father... ...from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches... I have to confess, I have this passage highlighted in my Bible, and for several weeks I have been praying this for you, because I know you are suffering in myriads of ways, and I pray, Lord, give them the strength to know the depths of your love, even in their afflictions. You know, we enjoy God's providence when things are good, not so much when things are bad, right? I mean, Peter enjoyed God's providence when he was chasing the angel out of prison. James may have felt differently as he was led to his, you know, getting ready to be led to his execution. And I would imagine that even Peter struggled knowing that after he escaped, 16 prison guards were killed because of him. Why would God providentially ordain all those things to happen? Or why did Peter escape and Stephen and James did not? Well, here's a way to think biblically about the providence of God. So we're going to, you know, we need to go to the scriptures and think about this a little bit. And again, I admit, this is not exhaustive. I can't be exhaustive today. But we, I want to point you in the right direction. So, I want to share some truth statements from Scripture. And we can see these truths throughout the entirety of Scripture. But here are some explicit passages that sort of speak about them. First thing is this. God created all things and sustains all things. God created all things and he sustains all things. Genesis 1.1. 1, 1, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Colossians 1.15-17. The Son... Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So that's the first thing. God created all things and sustains all things. Secondly, God directs and governs all things. Psalm 145 The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down to him. The eyes of the Lord the eyes of all look to you and give and you give them their food at their proper time. You open your hand, Lord, and satisfy the dev- desires of every living thing. Thirdly, God's steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 136 recounts numerous acts of God's providence. And it repeats the phrase over and over and over again. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. It's this mantra of God that he wants us to know. Even in the midst of affliction or things that are, that are, uh, that are saving us. The steadfast of the Lord Love of the Lord endures forever. And then there's Lamentations three. If you haven't read this tiny little book in the Bible, it comes after the book of Jeremiah, which talks about the destruction of J- Jerusalem. It is an unbelievable book. It is a lament. That that, that that in itself is a different genre of literature, if you will, right? It is a lament. But right in the very middle of this lament, Jeremiah says this because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. They were feeling consumed and overwhelmed. And he gives them this hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Number four. God is good. He is just, merciful, and gracious. Nehemiah speaks of God's providential hand when he recounts the unfaithfulness of Israel But the faithfulness of God. Nehemiah 9 says this For many years you were patient with them, Lord. By your Spirit you warned them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention, so you gave them into the hands of the neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. And lastly, Psalm 145, 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. That's a biblical snapshot of the providence of God. And these truths about God tell us, without a doubt, that he loves us, that he is for us, and that, when, that one day all things will be made new. And then there will be no more tears, no more suffering, and no more dying. When we know that God is good, then we know that we can hold fast to him in our trials, our distresses, our troubles, that he is designed for us. Hard for us to imagine that God's designed certain things like that for us. I want to close by sharing a snapshot of my life in what I believe to be God's providential hand, directing and ordaining things in my life. It started when I was six years old. Our house burned down on Christmas Eve. Yes, Christmas Eve. We had to jump out of my parents' second-story bedroom window. All our stuff was gone. Our family dog, gone. I had to walk past huge piles of what was left of our stuff piled high in the backyard, including a half-melted Redskins jacket that I had been waiting all year to get. Remember the ones with the vinyl sleeves? Yeah, that was melted. Then I had to endure my parents' rocky marriage as they tried to put our lives back together. My mom turned to Jesus. My dad turned to Scotch on the Rocks. Every night the scene was the same. My mom with her Bible in her lap and my dad with a bottle in his hand. Their relationship was strained and failing. Fights, furniture tossed about, people leaving for days. It finally ended in divorce when I was a teenager. Fortunately, I met Jesus too. A bunch of friends and a faithful young life leader. Wit and Carmen, yep. Faithful young life leader led me to Christ in high school. Life was good then. It had meaning and purpose and joy. But then the call came in the middle of the night. My best friend, who was off at college, was in a motorcycle accident. And as with most motorcycle accidents, he didn't make it. He was dead at 19. I married a wonderful, beautiful woman, smart and willing to marry me, even though I wanted to go into full-time ministry. After two years of marriage, she finds a lump on her neck. Doctors say she needs to have her thyroid removed. No worries. It will all be okay. Our first child is born. He's a boy, a big boy, (laughs) 10 pounds, 15 ounces. They immediately rush him off to the neonatal intensive care unit for a week. What's wrong? We have to scrub in for 15 minutes every time we want to hold him, but he's fine. He's just big, and that created some anomalies in his blood work. Thank God. Child number two comes, and she's beautiful. Words cannot describe About six months later, another fire. This time it's in the kitchen and almost traps our daughter in the back room of the house. But everyone gets out and is okay. But the kitchen is destroyed. I'm tired of fires. Child number three, another girl. And as my friend used to tell me, I'm too blessed to be stressed. Molly came along. My dad has a massive heart attack at the age of 57 and dies homeless. I officiate his funeral. We move back to my hometown here. Richmond for my dream job. Everything is awesome. Two years later, while I'm watching a middle school football game, I get two phone calls. The first is from my wife. Remember that lump in my neck? Well, it came back, but this time with cancer. Six minutes later, I get another call before I can even process the first one. It's my brother. He tells me my mom has breast cancer. And we'll need a double mastectomy. Why do these things have to happen? Fast forward a few years. I'm 43 years old. I work out regularly. I'm not overweight. I don't smoke or drink. But I wake up one Monday morning with chest pains. I barely make it back from walking my daughter to the bus stop three houses away. My wife takes me to the hospital. Tests, blood work. I've had a heart attack. I'm tired of sickness. My mom's cancer comes back with a vengeance. I spend six weeks watching her die, and then I officiate her funeral. Six weeks later, my emotional stability starts to break down. I wonder why. I go to work, but I'm struggling and just slugging it out, hour by hour. I just want to cry all the time. I'm depressed. What is wrong with me? Our kids are growing up. They're all teenagers. One in college, one in high school, one in middle school. Our middle daughter has some pretty significant depression, anxiety issues. She starts cutting. We get her counseling. And one afternoon, we left her home by herself to go to one of Taylor's concerts in Washington, D.C. She decides to try to kill herself by overdosing on NyQuil. And thankfully, she's not successful. Hospital, psych ward. More counseling. Is life supposed to look like this? You can't make up this stuff. This, but this is reality. I'm only fifty-five years old. Fires, births, death, sickness, cancer, depression, mental illness, accidents, tragedies, and the list could go on. God, what on what on the earth are you doing? Why do I have to go through all this suffering and pain? What is the point? Did I do something to deserve it? No. I did not do anything to deserve it. It's just part of God's plan of redemption. It's what I come to an understanding of. It's God's providence actively at work. Not just him sitting by, but he's actively at work in my life and in the lives around me. I read the following verses last week, and by the grace of God, I know that they are true, and I had to just sit down and worship the Lord because of them. Psalm 13, 5 and 6 say these words But I have trusted in your steadfast love, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. I can honestly say that I believe that God has dealt bountifully with me, even in the face of all that stuff I just read. And then I read, the next day I read Psalm 16. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. And my cup. You hold my lot. Meaning God holds my life in his hands. And verse 6 says, The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I truly believe that. We live in a messy and broken world. But God is not afraid of getting into the mess with us. I would have written my story differently. With much less suffering. But I believe God knows what he's doing in order... To bring all things to fulfillment for His glory. He allows us to question and cry out, absolutely. But in the end, we need to know that He is good, He is just, He is gracious, and He is merciful. And one thing, one day, all things will be made new. And I believe that the best is yet to come. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you that Peter was released from prison, that you saved his life that night from being executed. We thank you that you sent that angel to guide him through that, that you ordained all, that whole plan. And Lord, as we look at our own lives, we, 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 we have to thank you for what you've done. Even in the midst of trials and afflictions, and sufferings and hardship. Because We believe you know what you're doing. And you're drawing us to yourself. And that's what life is really all about. It's about getting to know you better. It's about being in an intimate relationship with you. We often sing the song, All I have is Christ. And that is true.